It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. To the darker side of boxing season three episode number three a death in the ring this story is all about ray mancini and his infamous night against duke ku kim an episode which has been in the pipeline for some time when you think of darker side of boxing how dark can you get well we can talk about murders we can talk about suicides we can talk about things that happen outside of the ring but this is an incident that occurred inside the ring and one of the most significant moments in boxing history and as we go through the course of this story we'll certainly be explaining why it was so significant and why the death of Duke Kim was significant to the sport of boxing and to the career of Ray Manzini. Johnston this is a great episode to be covering different from what we've done previously very much like an episode in our first season when we did Billy Collins Jr. and Louis Resto. Very similar circumstances, but not so similar because of the incident that occurs in this particular fight. But it's the whole issues inside of the ring that is so prominent. And the aftermath of what happens is it just changes the sport forever. It does. It is a hugely significant fight in the history of boxing. And we're going to go into all of that. And, and it's nice to be able to actually speak about two guys that are genuinely nice. Um, they, they tend to be nice fellas and they're not arseholes in any way. Uh, like like many of ours, uh, our dark side of boxing characters, there's, there's plenty of them. But these two are genuinely nice fellas where there's an incident that occurs and a knock-on effect. Well, it's it's tragic, really. So we'll get into it and, and I, we hope you enjoy it because it it's different, but it's, it's all about boxing and, and the dangers that fighters face when stepping in the ring with one another. So we'll begin with Ray Mancini, and he was born into a boxing family. His father, Lenny Mancini, began his professional career in 1937 under the tutelage of the Hall of Fame trader, Ray Arcel. 
In May of 1941, he fought the reigning WBA lightweight champion Sammy Angnot in a non-title fight, losing a close disputed split decision. Lenny became a top-ranked contender in the lightweight division after his loss, which was greeted with a chorus of boos by those in attendance. Boxing historian, the late Burt Sugar, described Lenny Mancini as a banger and he was destined to become great. A rematch with Angnot was being negotiated after Lenny Mancini defeated the number one contender, David Castellou. But at the same time, the US was gearing up for World War II. Lenny's daughter, the oldest of three, Ellen Koza, said, My father wanted a rematch, of course, but this time for the title. The date was supposed to be February in 1942, but he got called to the army. He was drafted and he was to leave in January. Lenny was forced to abandon his boxing career and serve for his country, leaving his dream of a world title shot behind. However, he still had hope of returning one day to pick up where he left off. But that dream was shattered on November the 10th, 1944, near the French town of Metz. During combat, Lenny was hit with shrapnel from a German mortar shell, and as Chuck Fagan, a friend of the family, explained, he said, He got injured bad in the war, and he was laid up in hospital for seven months. He never got to fight that guy. Ray Mancini, the youngest of the three, recalled, My father never talked about it. Never said I got a raw deal. Never. But I could see how it pained him. The fact that he didn't get his opportunity. Well, upon Lenny's return and after a failed second run at Boxing Glory, he focused on attending to the needs of his family in Youngstown, Ohio, where they lived. And the city's population became more diverse after the end of World War II, when a seemingly robust steel industry attracted thousands of workers. Now, Bill Reilly, a business manager who worked in the city, said the Youngstown of the 50s and 60s was an absolute boom in town. Chuck Fagan again recalled the boom in industry with jobs that passed down through generations. And he said that all you heard was whistles, pipes, banging, trains going. Your father worked in a mill and retired in a mill. Your grandfather worked in a mill and retired in a mill. You were going to work in the mill. It was as simple as that. Ray said, Youngstown, man, was the best back in the 60s. The steel mills were booming. This town was vibrant and alive. Ray Mancini, well, he was born in East Ohio, still town, on March the 4th, 1961. His sister, Ellen, was 13 years older than him, and his brother, Lenny Jr., preceded him by five years. His mother was Irish, his father was Italian, and he took after both. Reverend Timothy O'Neill described Ray as a tough, scrappy little kid, but always very, very respectful. He has the heart of a lion of his father and the discipline and tenacity of the mother. Ray's boxing manager, David Wolfe, explained his upbringing. And he said Ray was a very religious boy. Uh, they went to church each Sunday and they put a premium on hard work, accomplishment, loyalty and loving family. Ray would spend much of his spare time reading through the various boxing articles about his dad. And he remembered I'd be in the basement by myself and I'd have a little flashlight to see the pictures. And I'd say, I'm going to be that guy. And Lenny Senior would often tell his son when they looked through that scrapbook together, I didn't win them all, but I never took a step back. Ray would go on to become a popular athletic kid who obeyed his parents, did his homework and eventually followed his older brother Lenny Jr. into the boxing gym, 
where he found his true passion and purpose in life and that was to become a world champion for his father. However, it was Lenny Jr. who seemed the more talented in the ring and it looked as though he would be the one to accomplish what his dad had been unable to achieve. And Ray said, Man, he was like a handsome son of a bitch and charming. He was a player. All the girls loved him. He would like to live on the edge. Lenny's assistant, boxing trainer and friend, Tank DiCoco, described what he was like. Lenny? was the funniest kid I've ever known in my life. He'd give you the shirt off his back. Lenny had a wild side about him, no doubt. Ray didn't have that. Ray didn't have the distractions that his brother had. He just wanted to make it a success in boxing, and his amateur career wasn't half bad either, winning 43 of 50 amateur bouts with 23 coming by way of knockout. However, his life would change forever in 1979 when fight manager David Wolfe assigned trainer Murphy Griffith to find a fresh prospect at the National Golden Gloves Tournament. Wolfe recalled when Griffith called him, he said, I've seen a little Rocky Graziano. He's not going to win any amateur titles, but as a pro, he's going to be sensational. And with that, Ray Mancini was offered the opportunity to turn professional under the guidance of David Wolfe and Murphy Griffith, but he would have to leave home at 18 years old and move to New York City. Well, Ray, obviously a little bit apprehensive with the whole thing. He discussed it with his dad. He said, my father told me, if you stay here, you'll starve like I did. I'll never forget it. September the 18th, 1979, I was crying like a baby. I didn't want to leave. He said, no, 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 you've got to go. I knew I wasn't coming back unless I was successful. Now, although Ray was able to make a good solid start to his professional career with 16 wins and 13 of those came by stoppages, he would return home a lot quicker than he thought. 17 months later, on Valentine's Day in 1981, Ray Mancini was called by his sister with some devastating news. Leonard John Mancini, who was 25 at the time, had been accidentally shot in the head and killed by his girlfriend. And this is what Ellen remembers. She said, I had to be the one to call Raymond to let him know. That was the hardest thing I ever had to do. I could tell through the phone. I could see it. All I heard was this agonizing, no, screaming, no. And obviously Ray remembered it himself when he heard that tragic news from his sister. I'll never forget it. When she said, Raymond, I've got some bad news. Then he got shot. He's dead. I just screamed out. I couldn't breathe. I fell to the floor. I flew in the next day. I see my sister and we just held each other and cried. I was like, wow, this is reality. Driving into Youngstown, everything was in slow motion. But I remember I said, I want to see him. And we got a call from the funeral home to say that the body had arrived. We drove up there so I could say goodbye. Then he seen it. Well, he managed to hold it together during the wake, but he was heard by neighbours and by friends and family crying terribly afterwards at home. The whole family were completely devastated by the sudden loss of Lenny Jr. And Ray didn't want to go back to New York and he told his dad, I don't have to go. But Lenny told his son, no way, you have to go, Ray recalled. It was a crossroads moment for me because if I didn't leave, then they would never have got on with my life. I relied on my faith and I left to go and pursue my career because if not, you stay home, you suffocate, you crawl in a hole and you just become one of many. Four weeks later, 
and Ray made his cable television debut at the Madison Square Garden's Felt Forum and knocked out Norman Goines in the second round. David Wolfe was in awe of Ray's mentality and he said, Ray was able to shelve his grief and get ready for that fight with Goines in a way that beloids how young he was and was just an indication of how he would be able to cope with the tragedies to come. Ray recalled, We buried my brother, I had grieved enough and now it was time to move on and use it as motivation. With that fight, another five months, and I got offered my first network television fight on CBS. So, bing, 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 things happened right away. Now this is a good time to move 7,000 miles west from Youngstown, Ohio, to South Korea. And 16 years into the past, where we meet Duke Koo Kim, born July 29th, 1955. Thankfully, we were able to gather some information on Kim after he kept a journal on his life up until his death. Sports Illustrated printed sections of his diary that was read out by his fiance Young Mi Lee, in 1982. And those journals, well, it began with an apology. It said, with a mixed feeling of fear and excitement, I am afraid that hardly how to spell. I may become a laughing stock for writing this story. On my second birthday, my father passed away. Soon after, I suffered a disease which almost killed me. I think I believe it's the same disease that his father died with as well. My mother, Yang Sun Neil, was a woman of great misfortune. She married four times, leaving me in her sister's care in Seoul when I was only an infant. She took on all sorts of jobs, including a housemaid, but without much success. Come to think of it, she was only 25. No one can blame her for trying to seek happiness by remarrying. My childhood dream was literally having a bowl of hot rice. So young me read how Kim's mother, Sun Neon Yang, left his stepfather, a bean curd peddler, when he was not just five, or not just five yet, because his oldest son had become violently abusive towards her. On the morning, Sun Neon fled with Duck Koo, and she carried all their possessions on her head. Finally, at sundown, they stopped in a town 18 kilometres from the demilitarised zone that separated North and South Korea. The place was called Bannum, and Bannum was a poor fishing village. But Kim's mother and her children and the townspeople must have seemed well off to them. Uh, Kim actually wrote that I was not embarrassed when I actually saw my mum begging for food because I was so hungry. So they had never had a pot to piss in, literally. Taking her two sons, she walked a great distance and finally arrived in a fishing village where she begged for food for her boys. There she met and married her fourth husband, whose name was Kim as well, uh, the most common of the Korean surnames. He was a farmer and a fisherman with a small patch of rice and an old boat he would take out in the East Sea for mackerel, cattlefish and octopus. He had three sons from a previous marriage who became Kim's brothers. Kim wrote... One new brother used to drag me around, forcing me to fight with other village kids. The older kids enjoyed watching our fights, and I despised them even today for it. At the age of six, I was learning to fight. In those childhood days, I could see the red sun rising from the ocean's horizon. I planned my future while watching the sun rise and the bright sunlight. I always repeated to myself that I shall live to make it big. I used to catch and eat scallop and fish and swim out far, or far away. When autumn came, we used to catch locusts to fry and eat. In winter, we'd go wild rabbit hunting. 
with a stick in our hands we'd climb a snow-covered hill where there were so many wild rabbits or we'd go sledding on frozen rice paddies but there were more days of hardship than there was of fun home for duke Kokim was a hut with a thatched roof and walls made out of mud and plywood there was a separate structure in the yard which served as both an outhouse and a shelter for the family's most valued possession a cow in the summer kim would swim in the blazing sun and catch fish and scallops in the autumn he'd fry grasshoppers to eat as a snack during the winter he and his brothers would hunt rabbits by beating them with sticks Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Kim went to school, but it wasn't a free resource and he was always behind on his fees and he remembered. I would ask my mother for some money and each time she would say she didn't have it. She would hit me every time I asked. When in school, he fought often, but wasn't much of a scrapper, so would lose and get caught by the teachers. They would discipline him by pinning a letter to his shirt and parading him around the school. A very difficult upbringing to come into. A very, very poor, complete poverty by the sounds of it for what Duke Kukin was brought up in. Absolute, complete contrast to Ray Boom Boom Mancini. A, a complete contrast. Um, he struggled with his mother at times as well. And, and as a teenager, Kim left the family home in the end. He had enough, clearly. He just wanted to go and make it on his own. And he headed to the city of Sokocho, about 120 miles west of Seoul and found a job in a bakery. Now, after two years, he moved on to the capital where he worked as a welder in a steel mill. Ironically, both worked, well, it was a mill town where Ray Mancini lived and he, he worked in a mill. It's just very interesting, all those miles away, but yet the mill comes up at this time. He left his job after he got into a fight with his boss and he wrote, when I was ignored or humiliated, I felt an unbearable anger. Even these days, I cannot stand being looked down on. Back then, I was not thinking about the consequences of my action. I never had a happy home, and I was deeply unsatisfied. And every now and then, I would become angry. He left the mill with no money and had to beg a bus driver to let him on the bus, which took him to a neighborhood by a stream where he found, f where he found wood and made fire. He lived under a bridge for a time, ate crackers and drank water for two days while looking for work. Then, when his life was at its lowest of lowest points, he found a job selling palm reading books in coffee shops. Although he considered it to be demeaning work and made less than a penny on each book he sold, Kim was no longer hungry and he wrote, I know I cannot afford to be lazy. I must create something in order to realise my great dream. I never liked my mother very much as a kid. 
I had wanted her to raise me on her own. I guess I was too young to know. But now I understand my mother and feel sorry for her. That's why I want to be a good son and bring her happiness. In order to do that, I must reach the top. A country boy called Kim Duck Koo. And that's actually the correct order of his name in Korean. And he said, we'll show the world something. I shall run and fight until I'm covered with blood and sweat. Kim then wandered into the Dongar boxing gym at the age of 16 and found a place where he could exploit his rage and ambition. This was the country's leading gym, which was run in an iron-fisted way by a former fighter named Hyun Chi Kim, who remembered young Kim and said, I noticed he was worse off than the others. I didn't think he was fighter material. He couldn't punch very hard, he wasn't quick and nor did he possess a good engine. But Yoon Gu Kim, a welterweight, vividly recalls the first time he really gave Kim a good whacking sparring and he said he was more strong-willed and ruthless than others. His will came from his early life. Now a friend who was Kim's roommate, Bong Sang Lee, said he knew boxing was hard but also that it was worthy of challenge. He said he would succeed in boxing. He lived with Bong Sang Lee in a room hung with framed pictures of his fights on the wall and kept a scrapbook. It was his most valued possession. He also wrote slogans and pinned them up. One of them read, Poverty is my teacher. It was written in blood. While in the middle of his amateur career, Kim met the love of his life, Young Mi Lee. It wasn't easy getting her to be his girlfriend and she said, my parents weren't so ambitious as to wish to have a doctor or a lawyer as a son-in-law, but they wanted me to marry a regular salaryman. I refused to see him. I avoided him. Undeterred, Kim decided to write her love letters, and it worked. However, young Mi's disapproving father needed to be won over. Kim Duku was invited to the family home to make his case to young Mi's father. Well, Kim explained his hardships as a child, he was a keen reader of novels and, and knew the histories of China's three ancient kingdoms. And he quite simply knocked on Bambi and showed his articulate side. Young me recalled that he was quite persuasive. My father had fled from North during the Korean War and experienced much hardship himself. So after hearing about the life of Kim, he gave in and he was happy for him to be together. Now, the one thing about Korean fighters, they weren't supposed to have girlfriends. It was actually frowned upon because many believed that love and romance would corrupt the fighting spirit. Now, Huan Chai Kim, the gym's owner, considered disciplining Kim when he found out about his new love, Young Me. But Kim's attitude and devotion was better than when he was single. And Yungu, who was a guy within the gym, and he said he was very more diligent once he got a girlfriend. And Kim was eager to succeed. So he would talk for hours with the featherweight Sang Bong Lee. And although he lacked the fundamentals of some naturally gifted fighters, his will and desire was completely unmatched. From then on, his philosophy was to be more like the ancient warriors of Korea or China who avoided the idea of retreat in battle like a samurai must face his enemies head on. And Sang Bong said, the idea of stepping back was shameful. So that was his, his philosophy, his ideology on how to fight. Well, Kim worked and trained hard, winning 29 of his 33 amateur fights boxing in the halls of Seoul, a place called Munwa 
and it was a dark and dusty gym filled with folding chairs, apparently. But he still could not impress his manager, who actually told Kim that he did not think he was given enough of himself to be a good boxer. Well, Kim, by hearing this, was absolutely deflated with it. So he actually confided in his wife, young Meg Lee, and declared that he wanted to kill himself, believe it or not. And that's what she said. So instead, she obviously, she convinced him to persevere with his dream. And that's what he did. Eventually, Kim continued his amateur career and then eventually turned pro in 1978. And he won seven of his first nine fights, losing one and drawing the other. He bought himself a pair of trainers to reward himself with the money he had earned and continued to train hard. He ran to the gym rather than take the bus. He strengthened his neck by tying cord to a barbell and held the weight with his teeth. By the time Kim and Lee were engaged in the summer of 1982, Kim had begun to make a reasonable name for himself in boxing. He won the Korean Lightweight Championship in December of 1980 and the Orient and Pacific title in February 1982. Lee never saw him box, but he did take her to see a fight so that before they were married, she would have some idea of a boxer's life. They celebrated their engagement with parties at her parents' home in Seoul and in his mother's village of Hyoin, a four-hour drive from the capital. With only one loss in 19 professional fights, Kim had exceeded the expectations of his manager who thought he wouldn't be able to cut it as a boxer. Once upon a time, boxers in South Korea were once great heroes, then a poor country that lacked the sports and games of richer lands. Fights were the leading diversion, but by 1982, baseball and television had arrived in the country and people didn't go to fights as often as they once did. When he started making money as a fighter, he dreamed of buying a house close to the Olympic Stadium so he, his wife and son could walk to the 1988 Olympic Games. The prospects of a world title shot seemed to be beyond him, but after defending the Orient and Pacific lightweight title three times, there were no more challenges left for Kim to face. It was at this point that the WBA made Kim Duku the number one contender for their lightweight title. So this is a good time to move back to Ray Mancini, who by the 1980s had been recognised as the kid with huge potential by the boxing media and the television networks. Ray was the white, good-looking, working-class kid with an all-action style and a touching story of how he promised his father that he would one day win the lightweight title just for him. Four decades after Lenny Mancini was forced to stop boxing, his son Ray, who took his old name, Boom Boom, Ray Boom Boom Mancini, was now on the verge of completing their dream and becoming a world champion. But fighting for a shared dream with his father wasn't the only thing Ray fought for. He also represented Youngstown, Ohio, a once booming industry that had now fallen into decay by the 1980s. The industrial economy that drew various groups to the area collapsed in the late 1970s, culminating with the September 19, 1977 closure of the Youngstown Sheet and Tube Campbell Works after financial downturn to the steel manufacturing process in international competition. So more than 4,000 steel workers from their mills, they lost their jobs. Now, Bert Sugar explained that Youngstown, Ohio, has always been a factory town. 
it was one of those cities in the Midwest where once factory jobs started leaving, it started basically crumbling in terms of its infrastructure and its population. Then Ed O'Neill, a Youngstown native actor and friend of Ray, said Youngstown was devastating because guys who thought they were secure in their jobs, pensions and so forth, suddenly there was nothing. There wasn't anything. So the town practically overnight just kind of almost dried up and blew away. Chuck Fagan also explained that there was nothing positive coming out of Youngstown at this time. They used to have a bumper sticker. Last one leaving Youngstown, turn the lights out. But there was hope by the early 1980s as the residents looked beyond the vacant factories and mills for a sign of optimism. They found it in a favourite son. Tank DiCoco emotionally said he gave them something to be proud of, something to look forward to, something exciting, something good about this area because the area was going down. He gave people what they needed. He brought the whole community back together. Of course, that was Boom Boom Mancini. Now his manager, David Wolfe, could not only see the value in Ray's exciting potential, but he could see the importance of his backstory, of this rugged piece of Americana, a survivor of the changing times who lost his brother, who fought for his fractured Youngstown and wanted to become world champion for his war hero father. Wolf sold the story to CBS Sports in 1981, who in turn spun their magic through the lens of television and millions bought into the story of Ray Boo Boo Mancini. He was now known within the mainstream culture in a time when there were even bigger names, the likes of Marvin Hagler, Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Thomas Hearns, Aaron Pryor, Larry Holmes and Alexis Arguello. David Wolfe recalled, he drew fans that were not boxing fans because CBS in its advertising, in its leading to the fight, told the story of Ray and his father over and over again and Ray became a well-known face on American television and people fell in love with him. Rocky had just hit the screens and that added to the meat of the story which was presented by CBS Sports. Ray was the ethnic American hard-working tough guy who could slug it out in the ring just like the story of Rocky Balboa. He became the real-life Rocky. And David Dinkins, a CBS sports producer, said, there is something magnetic about a true-life hero. Sylvester Stallone was not Rocky Balboa. Ray Mancini is Ray Mancini. He had a great backstory. And what we did with him was just document what was already there. His promoter at the time, now, steps in, Bob Arum. Well, he was there before, but yeah, Bob Arum was his promoter. He also, obviously, understood the buzz that was surrounding Ray. And he said, we got to a point around that time when people realised that if you were a boxing fan, you had to see this kid fight. So each fight seemed to top the next. It didn't matter who he was being matched against. It was Mancini they were coming to see. He was the show. He was undefeated in 19 fights and Ray Mancini went on to win the NABF lightweight title when he stopped Jorge Morales in the ninth round on May 16, 1981. After retaining the title once against Jose Luis Ramirez by decision, Ray was given a shot at the WBC and the ring lightweight title, which was was then held by the great Alexis Arguello in October 1981. Now, Bert Sugar described the champion, the great champion. He said, one of the greats, magnificent fighter with great firepower, great punching power. He had leverage 
on leverage. Al Bernstein described Ray's performance that night, saying that Mancini fought the fight of his life for 10 rounds and he executed it perfectly. They had a game plan and he did everything as well as he could do it. Ray, who was only 20 at the time, recalled that I'm boxing him, I'm banging that body. I mean, the fight's going according to plan. It was an even fight after 10 rounds and it could have gone either way. But as we know, the great explosive Finn Man was in a different league and he used his experience and power to change the tide. The fight ended in the 14th round when the referee waved it off following an impressive knockdown from Aguayo, who was nine years older. He showed his maturity and why they also called him the gentleman of the ring by embracing Mancini and telling him that he would be a world champion one day. His gallant performance endeared him even more to the American sports fans, probably more than the story being pitched by CBS Sports. Just seven months later, and two more wins under his belt, Ray Mancini was given another world title shot, this time against the WBA lightweight champion Arturo Frias at the Aladdin in Nevada. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. But before we move on to the fight... Ray found himself in a difficult situation while preparing for the Frias fight in Tucson, Arizona. The police got a call from a chambermaid who worked at the hotel where Mancini was staying and were told that three men with guns showed up at the hotel looking for Mancini. The men asked the chambermaid for the location of Mancini's room and she pretended not to know. The men then got in a car and left. When Mancini learned of the incident, he moved his training camp to Las Vegas, Nevada and trained with police surveillance until the fight. Neither the motive or identities of the men were ever discovered. Just one of these weird isolated incidents that were reported. Maybe they were trying to kidnap him. Who knows what they were trying to do, but mm. a very strange side story to add in there. Now, moving into the fight and boxing historian Steve Farhood correctly describes the short entertaining battle. Mancini Frias turned out in one round to be what Hagler and Hearns' three rounds would be later in three years down the line. Just wall-to-wall action. And one writer described the action and said, this was a whirlwind battle. Both men like thresher machines gone haywire as they traded huge shots at breakneck speed. Both took and landed huge punches and both were shaken. But it was Frias who hit the canvas and had to be saved by the referee with just six seconds left in a breathtaking opening round. Mancini and his team were elated, as were the paying customers, even though they actually only got to witness two minutes and 54 seconds of action. So after the fight, Ray said, when the referee raised my hand, it was a euphoric feeling. The only thing that compared to it is seeing each one of my children born. It hits me every time I see it. 
So the images of Ray, his dad and mum in the ring together was a sight to behold. Winning that title was more than just a belt. It was a dream that become reality. Senior Vice President of CBS Sports, Rick Gentile, said Ray Mancini was a very, very popular champion. His whole persona was of being just this nice kid from Ohio. The ratings of Mancini fights were great. Our highest ratings of any fighter we were doing. The pride of Youngstown, Ohio, was adamant on keeping his world title. And he said, I had worked so hard to get it. I'm not about to give it up now. He made one defense of his title and then was informed that he would be taking on the WBA number one contender from South Korea, Dukku Kim. It was his unanimous decision over Kwan Min Kim on February the 28th, 1982, that actually made him the number one contender to the title. Rick Gentile admitted that we had never heard of Dukku Kim before that, but we would look at film videotape whatever we could get of him fighting and we knew that he was a very tough guy we didn't want a guy who was going to run we wanted somebody who was going to stand there and exchange and that was kim's style kim was determined to cause the upset and was enjoying having money in his life and he used the proceeds from the kwan min kim fight to buy a suit and rent a two-bedroom apartment for him and young me kim was never happier than the day he hosted a barbecue in his new apartment with his wife. A friend and fellow fighter, Seo In Seong, said he was full of confidence and so much pride. He believed that the whole world was his. By early November, young me found herself on a second floor balcony at Kimpo International Airport, now called Gimpo International Airport. In observing an ancient Asian prohibition against fighters taking their lovers, young Mei, who was now pregnant with their son, Huan, did not travel to the States. Instead, she was forced to watch from home. As Mark Kriegel wrote in his article for the New York Times, A Step Back, he wrote, young Mei was forced to watch her fiancé board the plane without even saying goodbye. Even as tears streamed down her face, the dance had begun, the ballet of blood and light in her tummy. Kim headed for the plane with his modest entourage, along with a crowd of reporters following them as they boarded their flight to their first stop in Los Angeles for a week's preparation. But on the night of Sunday, November the 6th, 1982, the Challenger and his handlers landed in Las Vegas a week before the Mancini fight. They were in awe of the wide roads and the enormity of the blinking neon strip. Kim was flabbergasted with the glitz of Caesar's Palace, with its celebrity audience, including the likes of Frank Sinatra. It was a different universe from his poor upbringing in Korea. Kim and his team headed for the slot machines in the Caesar's Casino, where Kim apparently said, this is like heaven. His trainer, Kim Yoon-gu, recalled years later, I remember when we landed in Las Vegas for the fight. The city was all lit up at night. It was like landing on a garden of flowers in the desert. We'd never seen anything like it. Kim had never been to the US, but he devoted himself to little other than his training. But he found time to call young me just to let her know that he had bought her a watch and some cosmetics. Well, at Caesar's Palace in La- but Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas, where the bout would be held, Kim posed for a snapshot in front of a fight poster by placing his fist on Ray Mancini's face. Later that week, Ralph Wiley of Sports Illustrated met Kim in his darkened suite. The air heavy 
with incense. Wiley asked about the fighter's chin, grabbing his own chin and moving his jaw from side to side. Wiley wrote, Kim's expression changed. I would like to say he smiled, but it was something else. Scorn. He gently touched his jaw with two fingers of his right hand. Then without averting his gaze, he reached over and touched the marble window sill with the same two fingers, just as gently. He turned to face the desert. The interview was over. Then in another interview, Rice 4 of the Las Vegas Review Journal noticed the neatly lettered Korean characters on the lampshade by the fighter's bed. He asked what it meant. Live or die, he was told, or in the American term, kill or be killed. Rice 4 was one of the few reporters at ringside for the Mancini Kim Bout, and he said the talk around Caesars Palace the week of the fight was that, indeed, Kim was not a qualified opponent. Qualified or not, Ray was not going to take his unknown challenger very lightly, and he said, I planned on a long fight. Everybody didn't know about that. I saw films. The guy was very impressive. Tough, rough, hungry, determined. Those are the worst kind. When you fight fighters from another country, they're fighting for more than themselves. They're fighting for their whole country. They're carrying the dreams and hopes of their countrymen on their backs. That's a hard load to fight. By midweek, Ray's friend and cornerman, Tank DiCiocio, was scouting one of Kim's workouts. Ray asked, what's he look like? Tank responded, guy's doing nothing but body work. Ray replied, yeah, and? Guy keeps coming forward, Tank responded. Mancini nodded knowingly. He'd been trying to tell the sports writers, we're going to have a war, no doubt about it. Mancini said years later, people in America are not sophisticated about boxing from the sense that they just don't have an awareness of anything that goes on outside this country. America may have been surprised by Kim, but Mancini was more than prepared. He said, I had an old school trainer, Murphy Griffith, and we used to do a lot of things that fighters years ago would do. I'd go neck deep in water and shadow box four minute rounds. I'd push a boulder up a hill. I'd do push up with a 60 pound sack of sand on my back. Caesars constructed a 10,000 seat outdoor arena in anticipation of the event that many feared wouldn't capture a big audience. That opinion was granted considering Aaron Pryor had defeated Alexis Arguello in Miami the previous night. Pryor was also an opponent that Mancini was being positioned to fight once he dealt with Kim. Ray Mancini's stature had grown so much that he met Frank Sinatra before the fight on the marquee outside Caesars. The singing legend who had invited Ray to be set after the fight said, Are you feeling, champ? Thank you, said Ray. I feel good. Frank replied, I've been following you. You're making us real proud. Mancini, well, he stood at five foot six, the same as Kim. Ray fought small, but Kim fought smaller. Mancini, a converted southpaw, was right-handed and Kim was a left-hander, and there was a quarter-inch difference in reach and a half a pound in weight. Mancini was 21, and he was two years younger than Kim, but really there was little difference in power between these two fighters as we now move in to the details of the fight. There really was nothing between them, was there? Nothing at all. The fight was actually broadcast live on CBS on November the 13th, 1982. The referee assigned was Richard Green, who had presided over several notable fights, including Muhammad Ali against Larry Holmes. 
He had also officiated two high-profile fights earlier in the year. Wilfred Benitez's fight against Roberto Duran for Benitez's super welterweight title and Ray Mancini's first-round knockout of Arturo Frias. Before the fight, when both men were in their dressing rooms, which were literally next door to each other, Ray remembered, we were preparing like we normally do, when all of a sudden I overheard growling and pow, pow, pow. The lockers are shaking. And I can hear shouting. Mark Kriegel said it was Kim. It's Kim getting worked up before the fight, letting off those blood-curdling screams. It's not what I would want to hear before I get into the ring. Ray, of course, wasn't bothered. He literally just turned to his handlers and said, I guess we're in for a rough one today, huh? (laughs) Brilliant. It does remind me, though, of Tong Po, the kickboxer, when he was kicking the concrete pillars of his shins. If everyone had never seen kickboxer, it did remind me of that. So we're now going to move into this fight. And at the opening bell, the pattern was established very early. Mancini tore at his challenger. But it was Kim who struck first, landing flush on Ray's chin with a straight left. Then some seconds later, another left to the heart. The fighters would stand toe-to-toe, their heads periously close. More than that, the fighters seemed united in their willingness to give and receive pain. Ray said, I knew I'd have to eat a few. But as he said, I was raised to never quit and I would keep coming forward. Kim connected with looping right hooks. Then Mancini inflicted a series of body shots in the third. It was a furious exchange near the end of the third round that concluded with a Korean pushing Ray back. Kim raised his arms and pumped his fists. He had taken Mancini's best shots and was still standing and feeling confident. Mancini plodded back to his corner, clearly the more wounded man. The cutman, Paul Percyfield, went to work on the left ear, which was split open and spouting blood. Ray's left hand was also being examined, damaged after throwing a left hook that bounced off the top of Kim's head. It was swollen and throbbing with pain. Sig Rojic, who was a member of the Nevada Athletic Commission before eventually becoming an advisor to President George W. Bush, said nobody really knew much about Kim, but it wasn't too long into the fight before we were looking at each other and saying, hey, we have ourselves a fight here. This wasn't one of those fights where you automatically expected the champion to win. Each round was incredibly hard fought. The fight settled into a rhythm and after five rounds it was clear this was going to be a war of attrition. While waiting on the bell for the six, Gil Clancy, one of two CBS analysts, felt uneasy after being in the corner on March 24th, 1962 at Madison Square Garden when his fighter, the welterweight Emil Griffith, beat Benny Kid Perret into a fatal coma. Now the former trainer spoke in an ominous way compared to his fellow broadcasters, Tim Ryan and Sugar Ray Leonard. And Gil Clancy said quietly, something's going to happen in this fight. Either one guy's going to get busted up or nail the other guy very badly. Very horrible thought that must have been for Gil Clancy, having been in the corner of Emil Griffith when he faced Benny Kid Perrette. And we did that for our legendary nights in our second season. And he must have been feeling there was something in the air in this fight. He must have seen something. I mean, it's weird, isn't it? How, that, how he was commentating and he could see the pattern that was developing. And, and the pattern of the fight was similar each round from one round to the next where Ray would win the first part of the round then Kim would respond with shots to the body and straight lefts 
one of which at the end of the eighth snapped back Ray's head. And Jim Hunter, who covered the fight for Reuters, said, I was very impressed by Kim's ability to absorb punishment and to dish out a lot of his own. Mancini and Kim then proceeded to go toe-to-toe for most of the fight. They would bleed, lean on each other in an astonishing slugfest. As the fight approached the championship rounds, Ray later admitted that he actually considered throwing in the towel. And he confessed, my body wanted to shut down, my body wanted to stop, but my mind wouldn't allow it. That's the old saying, the body's the army and the mind's the general. The body will do whatever the mind tells it to do. I had never, ever, for a minute, a second, or even considered quitting before. There was shame in saying that you had even thought of it. But that day, that day I did. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. As we hit the championship rounds, I felt like giving up. The only thing that saved me was the way I trained. I worked like a dog to get ready for my fights, and I knew if I could dig down, I'd find a way of keep going. And, well, he did. And by the 11th, both fighters were looking worse for wear. There was a left followed by a series of body shots by Kim, and Ryan actually yelled, look at him punch back. The pummeling with which Mancini was on the receiving end of, most of it continued until the bell. Even though Ray had actually controlled much of the fight from the 10th to the 12th. It was in the 12th that Ray threw an uppercut to the heart that caused Kim's left knee to touch the canvas. It might have been ruled a knockdown if Kim had not regained his footing so quickly. By now he was clearly looking the more fatigued fighter, but the fans were in appreciation as they rose to their feet at the end of the round, as Ray pounded his gloves together with joy as he walked back to his corner. Between rounds, as the fighters accepted their mouthpieces, Ryan reminded the audience what they were watching and he said, certainly the underrated Kim is giving Mancini all he can handle. This is the challenger, Duke Ku Kim. You may not have heard of him before, but you will remember him today. However, it was the 13th where the fight took a dramatic turn when Ray continued to deliver what some have suggested 44 consecutive punches, an onslaught that slowed only when Kim found enough room to grab and clinch. Then after breaking free of that grasp, Ray got off another 17 more, most of them hooks to the body. 79 seconds of the 13th round would elapse before Kim threw back his first punch. Ray explained... I was hitting him with shots, but he was still moving and making me miss too. He still had the wherewithal 
to move, his body slip, bob and weave. You can't stop a fight when a guy has the wherewithal to do that. Rick Gentile recalled it was a brutal fight. In fact, Kim was the aggressor more than Ray for most of the fight. But there was never a point where you thought one guy was beating the other guy to the point where a referee should have stepped in. Well, Mancini had begun to land straight rights off Kim's head, which resonated with a thud, apparently, some people heard. And and Kim's counters were less frequent and obviously less powerful, though he would land enough that he couldn't be discounted in the fight. Richard Green, one of Nevada's most experienced, was keeping a close eye on Kim, but he never seemed to be on the verge of stopping the fight. Mark Ratner, who helped institute numerous safety measures during this term for the Nevada Commission, never felt Green made a mistake by letting the fight continue. He said Ray was getting the better of most of the exchanges, but Kim was fighting back and he was defending himself and competing. Gil Clancy told CBS viewers that Kim was still dangerous with that straight left hand. When the bell sounded to start the 14th round, the champion ran out towards Kim who wearily pulled himself up, but this time, as they met to engage, Ray stepped to the right and stunned Kim with a left hook. Kim managed to avoid the follow-up left, but he couldn't avoid the right hand behind that. The right landed flush on Kim's head, and the challenger fell head first, which banged off the canvas as he fell on his back. The back of his head came to rest on the ring apron. Now, Ray remembered that it was a great punch, I hit him with a right shot and he went down. Green ushered Mancini to a neutral corner. So when he turned to Kim to pick up the count, he was on all fours, attempted to pull himself up. Kim somehow had managed to turn himself over to grab the ropes, climbing up the lower ropes and then finally pulling himself up. However, he got about three quarters of the way before tumbling back into the ropes. Referee Green had seen enough and quickly waved off the fight as jubilant Mancini fans stormed the ring. 19 seconds into the 14th round and the fight was over. Ray was ecstatic and he said, we just jumped. It was glorious because it was a great win. Nobody knew what was going to happen. Nobody knew. What Mancini didn't realise as he raised his arms above his head in jubilation was that the darkest days of his life were about to commence and he said, I don't think the average fan understands how much the fighters have to commit emotionally to a fight like that. When it's over and you win, there is this overwhelming sense of relief. I was really badly beaten up and I felt like I'd gone to hell and back, but I did what I came to do, which was to keep my title. Ray Mancini walked over to Kim's corner several times after the fight ended in a bid to congratulate his opponent on his brave effort. But Kim was beginning a bigger fight, one he had little chance of winning. Ralph Wiley of Sports Illustrated, covering the fight, called it, one of the greatest physical feats I had ever witnessed. Dave Wolf immediately after the bout, unaware at the time that his comment would soon take on a morbid ring to it, and he said, It was murderous. It was like Ray was fighting a mirror. I hope the people who said Kim was nothing are impressed now. Just moments after the fight, Kim collapsed in his corner. Kim Yoon Gu, who was in the corner when he collapsed, said, He was obviously hurt. But at that time, we had no idea it was so serious. Kim was taken out of a ring on a stretcher and sent straight to the Desert Springs Hospital. And while Ray recovered back in his suite, his sister held ice bags to his left hand 
His left ear and his left eye was now closed. His still crying mother tended to the right hand and right eye and he tried to comfort her. He said, don't cry, Ma, we won. Considering what he had just endured, Ray was in good spirits, completely oblivious to what Kim was actually going through at that time. It had been the most hard fought and dramatic victory of his career. But as the euphoria disappeared, his body began to hurt. He slept briefly before the strangely somber visitors began arriving in his suite. Look at me, he told Father Tim O'Neill. I don't think it's worth it. Father O'Neill replied, Ray, the kid's in bad shape. Upon his arrival, as in Kim's arrival, at the Desert Springs Hospital, Duck Koo was given a CT scan revealing a subdural hematoma, a blood clot, basically, on the right side of his brain. And Dr. Lonnie Hammergren, the neurosurgeon, saw from the scan that most of the blood had actually settled on the peritral lobe. He estimated its volume to be 100cc, and he actually said that enough to fill three and four one-ounce shot glasses. That's what he said. He performed a two-hour surgery on Kim that night and speculated that the clot was the result of a broken blood vessel and due to its probability to one tremendous punch to the head. Had the punch been part of the 39-blow bombardment from Ray Mancini that had been delivered in the opening 50 seconds of the 13th round, was it? the first of the final two rights in the 14th or the second? Or could the damage have been done by Mancini's wrists, but by Kim's head button of the canvas after the final blow when he's hit the deck? Could Kim's brain have been damaged before the fight? The neurosurgeon said the hemorrhage was quite fresh and the trauma was caused by just one punch. A short explanation into what happened is explained by a writer for Sports Illustrated, Robert H. Boyle, who said, A hematoma, as in a massive build-up of blood, occurs in the narrow space between the rigid skull and the soft brain. As it expands, the hematoma simply squeezes the brain to death. Surgery could not effectively stem the pressure on Kim's brain, and a traumatised Bob Arum suggested in the emergency room to suspend boxing for a few months, and he called for headgear for boxers and more heavily padded gloves. Aram said, get a blue chip medical panel to investigate this thing first and then suspend boxing. It is the height of a responsibility to allow this to happen and the old excuses are not working. Dr. Hammergren updated the press further after surgery to remove the blood clot and he said, Mr. Kim had a right subdural hematoma. He's very critical with terminal brain damage. There is severe brain swelling. The pressure will go up and up and that will be it. He'll die. His pupils have been fixed since he arrived. We have him on the respirator now. His body responds slightly to painful stimulus. And that is the only real sign of life we've had. They tell me he fought like a lion in the 13th round. Well, nobody could fight like that with a blood clot on his brain. Away from the hospital that night, Frank Sinatra introduced Ray to the audience of the Circus Maximus showroom. Frank introduced Ray Mancini. Ladies and gentlemen, this afternoon I saw the greatest fight I've ever seen. And here he is with us, my friend, the lightweight champion of the world, Ray Boom Boom Mancini. That's how Ray recalled it, word for word. But as the spotlight found him in the audience, he felt like a criminal. 
as he stood to wave and smile. The next morning, in an interview with the New York Times, Ray Mancini said it was a terrific fight and I saved my title. But what am I? A hero? Who's to say it couldn't be me? And yet, how can I say it was better him than me? And I believe he had a conversation with his dad about that as well. His dad said it could have been you. That same morning, Rick Gentile called the hospital for an update. What's going on? They said he was still in hospital and in bad shape. And then it was pretty much we all knew what was going to happen. You know he wasn't going to come out of this. Father O'Neill presided over a 10 a.m. mass at the ballroom in the Tropicana Hotel. Ray, his left hand bandaged, bowed his head as Father O'Neill asked everyone to pray for Dukku Kim. 6,000 miles away on the outskirts of Seoul, young me had been informed of her fiancé's condition. She said, I thought the sky fell down on me. Kim was still attached to a respirator when his mother flew in from Seoul with his half-brother. The half-brother bought herbal medicine and the mother bought an acupuncturist. Kim lived on the respirator for four days before one of the acupuncture specialists finally said he belongs to the dead. His mother agreed to have the machine turned off. So on November 17, 1982, a Nevada judge declared Kim legally dead and doctors removed him from the life support machine. Ray Mancini recalled that I was stunned. I was like in a dream world, you know, from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. Kim's body lay in an open coffin in Paradise Valley in a Las Vegas suburb, dressed in a brown checkered sports coat. His head was wrapped in a bandage. When the body was shipped to South Korea, 500 people came to his funeral at the Munwa Gymnasium in Seoul. His coffin, with one of his trophies placed inside, was wrapped in a South Korean flag. He was buried on a hill overlooking the fishing village of Koyin in Kangwon province where he grew up. On the flight back to South Korea, a traumatised Kim Yoon-gu locked himself in the toilet and he said, I cried and cried until we landed. I thought about quitting the sport entirely. In the end, I decided to stick with it, but it was a very, very difficult time. Mancini was distraught and he said softly, He died once and I felt I was dying every day. When you're a fighter, you develop a respect for your opponent and I had all the respect in the world for this guy. I just wanted to win the fight. I never wanted to see him hurt. It was devastating. On January the 13th, 1983, exactly two months after the Kim fight, Ray held a news conference announcing his return to the ring. He proclaimed himself healed and said, I have no mental blocks. I have buried the memory of all that. As concerned as he was with Ray's psychiatric state, his manager Dave Wolf and the promoter Bob Arum had to restore his commercial appeal. After the tragic events, CBS decided that they no longer wanted any part of boxing and declared themselves out. Rick Gentile explained the backlash and said, I don't think fight fans said, OK, that's it, I'm never going to watch another fight, just as they didn't say, OK, I'm never going to smoke another cigarette, when they put out a warning on the pack. But sponsors started to pull back and say, you know, you're asking us for a lot of money, you networks to pay for your exorbitant rights fees on football and basketball and baseball. And with all that bad publicity boxing is getting, you know what? We just as soon not do it. Well, Ray could also see the shift. He said before the Kim fight, I was being offered all kinds of endorsement deals. 
after that, everything went away. It just vanished. I understand that now. Time, I was like, I was a kid. I was heartbroken. I didn't know why. You know, it just all went away. Kim's death prompted a national debate on the eradication of boxing. And uh, even the Tiffany Network had been stung by the criticism who also uh, advertised for it. And Bob Aaron said, the perception was that they had put on a mismatch and gotten a guy killed. They were out of the Rain Mancini business. Not only the Rain Mancini business, but the boxing business as a whole. It was just the beer companies by this point that were the only marquee advertisers still associated with boxing. Boxing analyst Kieran Mulvaney explained that sponsors withdrew so network TV doesn't want to broadcast it. So people don't see as much boxing. So they don't know as much about it. So sporting media doesn't write about it as much because they say people don't watch boxing. They're not interested in it. And because media isn't reporting on it, people learn about it less it becomes this feedback thing. And before you know it, suddenly it's a niche sport. So this was the reason why Ray Mancini's next bout against English fighter George Feeney was moved to the NBC, which was, and they televised it live from Palazzo Dello Sport in St. Vincent in Italy. In an incredibly sad chain of events, a week before the fight, Kim Duck-Koo's mother, son Neo Yang, took her own life she drank a bottle of pesticide now the real cause of her death however unmentioned by any autopsy was overwhelming grief and shame apparently and neighbors speculated that she killed herself because of all the fighting over the money the family would receive from her son's life insurance Kim earned $20,000 for his last ever fight but his fiance's portion of his insurance policy was worth far more $60,000. In the month after Kim's death, young Mi Lee was especially upset on the mistaken assumption that she was a Buddhist. There were reports that she was going to marry Kim retrospectively so his soul might rest easily. But this never happened because Lee is in fact a Christian. Within hours, reporters appeared at the Grand Hotel Bilia to get Ray's thoughts on the suicide, but he declined to speak to the press. His agent, Irving Rudd, issued a brief statement expressing his deepest sympathies and profound sorrow. Italy's national sports papers, La Gazzetta dello Sport and Correa dello Sport, claimed Ray was too grief-stricken to eat. They said he isolated himself in his hotel room and prayed. They invented quotes from him, saying he would travel to Korea as soon as possible and pray at the graves of Duk Ku and Sun Yu. And Ray recalled, one paper said I was so distraught I went to a local cemetery and prayed over a grave because I was thinking of Kim. Absolute lie. They didn't care, they just made it up. Finally, Ray confronted a reporter who had been friendly upon his arrival and he asked Giovanni, why did you do this? And he replied, Ray, you must understand, we are journalists, it makes a good story. Chuck Fagan, who was part of the Mancini team, said, that's all they wanted to talk about, Kim, Kim, Kim. Tank Coco said it wouldn't go away, and Ray was just beginning to understand that it probably never would. 20 years on, and they still asked him, what's it like? What's it like to kill a guy with your bare hands? At one point, Ray usually chuckled in disbelief and go, you're kidding, right? And they'd go, no. And then Ray said, how am I supposed to feel? I'm dying inside. 
I bet. And, and Carmen, uh, which was Ray Mancini's wife at the time, explained that we really didn't talk much about it. It was something that was there. We knew it and we knew we would have to find a way to explain it to the kids. Well, Ray's daughter, Nina, who was in a third grade basketball practice, when a boy actually came up to her and told her that her father had killed a man. Nina adamantly replied, that's not true. You should watch your mouth. Carmen and Ray hadn't planned on exploring the topic so soon, but because Nina was only eight at the time when it happened. So when she came home crying and Ray calmed her down and told her to have a seat, then not knowing what else to do, he put on the tape of the Kim fight on the VCR. She bravely watched and then Carmen said, you see, it was an accident. And Nina replied, you didn't mean to do it, Papa. It was something that just happened. And four months after the mother's death, Kim's son, G1, was born. After his birth, young me, Lee, used her in inheritance to buy a new house for herself, her parents, her brother and her son. In another terrible twist to this tragic tale, referee Richard Green's last fight was a USBA heavyweight championship fight on May the 20th, 1983, that saw Greg Page defeat Reynold Snipes in a 12-round decision. Six weeks later, Green was found dead in his North Las Vegas home. The coroner ruled the death a suicide via self-inflicted gunshot, although only speculation linked his suicide to the tragic event. That's about all you know, really. Uh, interesting. Mancini then continued with his career, went on to fight eight more times, and he was four, well, four and four. That was his career after that fateful night. Bouncing in and out of retirement before eventually ending his boxing career for good in 1992 after a loss to Greg Hagan with a career record of 29 and five. Bob Arum said he was never the same fighter. He just didn't have the thing that made him who he was. He was never aggressive. He never threw the punches with the reckless abandon that he used to. He was shaken to his core. And we don't always agree with Bob, but he was right. He was right on this occasion. The demons of Kim's death have haunted him all his life. And he had endured a prolonged period of depression. And Ray confessed, there have been times that Kim came to me in my dreams. I can't always remember what was said or what was done. I don't know if I apologised to him or us just kind of looked at each other. In one of the dreams I remember we shook hands, embraced and he left. It was like no words. Ray continued and said, I don't know if it was me doing it for myself, thinking about him so much that he finally came to me or if in actuality he somehow did come to me and put it to rest. American sports writer Mark Kriegel, author of the biography of Mancini titled The Good Son, said in an interview, in all the, the obvious ways he was haunted. He also got over it. The complications for Ray have more to do with the fact that the rest of the world didn't get over it and continued using that fight as a kind of reference point for his life. The fight proved to be a watershed moment in boxing, triggering a series of major changes to the sport. Championship bouts as a result were reduced from 15 rounds to 12 rounds. The standing eight count was introduced and the fighters had to undergo more stringent medical tests before a match. Now this was a pivotal moment in boxing history because of the fact that it was this particular fight that introduced that ruling of 15 rounds going to 12. 
it's crazy, really, when you think about yeah. all the great championship fights of yesteryear. It is really mad because we do a lot of history on our podcast and you think about the big 15 round fights of the past before this but then you think about all the historical fights when you've got guys going 20 30 even 40 rounds and nowhere near as much medical support as well during these fights it just seemed to be a a genuine unfortunate incident that occurred but it led to a huge change in the sport the 12 round fights and the standing eight count yeah, massive. And obviously the uh, extra safety stuff that was brought in before and so they could check fighters through CT scans and stuff. That was that was slowly coming into play. So away from sort of the story as such, we're going to go into a little bit of detail. So even though Ray Mancini was involved in the fight, he actually disagreed with the change as well from saying one of the things that I think would really hurt boxing was going from 15 to 12 for championship fights. I lived for those championship rounds. I always felt they were my rounds. I believe nobody had trained the way I had trained and that was going to pay off in those final three rounds. So there you go. That's his perspective, even after he was in the ring that night. This is probably, as we said, a great time to reflect on these changes. But before we do that, let's just get some more insight from the others around the sport. So we had Kieran Mulvaney, and this is what he said. He said, there's something fundamental and primal about boxing. But as society shifts, there are legitimate questions of, well, do we still want to do this? It's that drip, 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 that constant sense that this is what boxing is about. If that became the prevailing feeling about football, in terms of American football, we're saying here, then the discussion changes. And staff writer for the New York Times magazines, Jonathan Mailer, also used the boxing and NFL comparison himself. He said, look at this point. We know how dangerous football is. Anyone who continues to believe that professional football players aren't potentially shortening their lifespan by playing this game is living on another planet. It's a great discussion. Rick Gentile continued with the difference between the two contact sports, but more specifically about how they were governed, which is a great point he goes into. He says, the NFL has a big issue in the concussion, the head injury situation, a huge issue. But there is an entity called the National Football League. There's a controlling entity, a managing entity. Football has the NFL to solve its problems or at least attempt to solve its problems. It has a PR machine to tell the public that we're working on this. Boxing was and still is really controlled by promoters and the networks back in the day. So there is no such thing as boxing. It had an ability to defend itself because there's no organisation. And that might have been one of the biggest problems they had. Yeah, one of the biggest problems that they've had, and like you said, still have today. Still, the clocks keep turning, the money keeps rolling in, and still, the problems still arrive. Now, Kim himself died from injuries suffered in the ring but compared to the swiftness with which boxing was relegated to the sidelines of American life football still holds its appeal again Kieran Mulvaney gives his opinion on this and he said if somebody were to die during an NFL game being broadcast live the massive social media response would that cause a greater perhaps long-term response Or would it mean that everyone went through the cycle of grief and outrage in a couple of days until Kim Kardashian did something else? 
I don't know. I'm very curious to see what happens in society over the next decade or two. Now, although the death of Dooku Kim forced boxing into a reaction rather than being more proactive, the dangers have always been highlighted, even from fighters who fought decades earlier. Fighters like Gene Tunney, who while training for the second fight against Jack Dempsey was hit hard by a sparring partner and suffered amnesia. Tunney said later that he didn't know who he was for 48 hours and that it was not until the seventh round of the Dempsey fight that he felt entirely normal. Tony has concluded, from that incident was born my desire to quit the ring forever, the first opportunity that presented itself. But most of all, I wanted to leave the game that I'd threatened my sanity before I met with an accident in a real-life fight with six-ounce clubs that would permanently injure my brain. Even Sonny Liston understood the dangers when he said in the early 60s, see all the brunes are in sort of a cup, and after you get hit a few times it shakes them out of that cup, when they give you smelling salts, it pulls them back into the cup. It's when the brains get shook up and run together that you get punched drunk. So following the deaths of American Patrick Day, Bulgarian Boris Sanchov, Russian Maxim Dadishev and Argentinian Hugo Alfredo Santillian, Ben Morse wrote for CNN and he said between 1890 and 2011, it's estimated that 1,604 boxers died as a direct result of injuries sustained in the ring, according to a survey carried out by Manuel Velasquez. This is an average of 13 deaths a year. According to Joseph Simps' 2011 study in the Journal of Com- Combative Sports, Manuel Velasquez collection, deaths in boxing have steadily decreased. At its peak, there were 233 boxing-related deaths in the 1920s, while there were just 103, just, I mean, it's enough, in in the 2000s. There was a steep decline in the number of fatalities following the death of Duck Koo Kim in 1982. Subsequent championship bouts were obviously reduced from 15 to 12 rounds, as we've mentioned, in an attempt to limit the long-term head injuries potentially suffered as a result of exhaustion. A 2009 American Medical Association report estimated there is a fatality rate in boxing of 0.13 deaths per thousand participants per year. Interesting. So on April 11, 1983, Robert H. Ball actually wrote an in-depth article for Sports Illustrated explaining how boxers die from acute brain trauma caused either by a blow or blows to the head or sometimes a heavy fall to the canvas. He also run through a timeline of all the different studies that have been completed through the years from the 1950s up until the 1980s when he wrote the report and what the outcomes were, etc. And we just recommend, please do go and have a look. If you want to read a bit more information, it's called Too Many Punches, Too Little Concern. And it's, it's got some great information in there. Now, while on this theme, the next thing we should probably discuss me and you Sean briefly that is uh, before moving on with the rest of this story so, so has the change from 15 to 12 rounds made a difference I mean the stats presented by Ben Morse just a few suggestions before we move on uh, with this story so more CT scans possibly uh, use of larger gloves uh, more emphasis on making gloves safer rather than making them more solid to hurt your opponent ban punching to the neck and head maybe is another thing I've heard or mandate recovery times for fighters after fights or any other ideas. So just briefly, Sean, I mean, it's a good time to discuss it. Has it has it improved the safety of boxing since the changing rounds? And 
and what can we do more to improve it, I suppose. We've had these conversations separately we before, have. haven't we, about safety and, and how <laughs> boxing is a lot safer than what it once was. I think it's quite evident that, you know, when a fatality happens like it did in 1982, it is a huge thing because it is not it's not expected it's even though it's a competitive sport you know you don't essentially expect a boxer to pass away I mean how many fights go on every single weekend through the course of a year you know you've got thousands upon thousands of fights a year and when you put the statistics against that about how many fatalities there actually are it's very very minimal in comparison really however what that doesn't take into consideration is the long-term effects. If this was a study on long-term effects of the sport and too many punches to the head, again, you'd be having that separate conversation about CTE. NFL football, the documentary that Netflix put out there on Aaron Hernandez about him having CTA when they did a study on his brain as well and all the stuff that he ended up doing, really erratic behaviour. WWE, Chris Benoit... I mean, he had CTE yep. from all the bumps that he took when he was wrestling. I mean, there is a lot of different sports out there that have a lot of physicality towards it and, and within it. And yet, because boxing is a combative sport, essentially two guys punching each other to the head, to the body, to different parts of you know vital organs, essentially, of the body... It is there's more emphasis on the sport because of what the sport is, while the statistics tell us something completely different. Can they make it safer? Can they use larger gloves? Well, yeah, they can because they can specify the ounce of gloves per fight. Usually it's a contractual obligation when a big fight is made about the size of the gloves for a fight. Can more medical things be done? Of course they can. Uh, can banning punch into the head and the neck? Well, the head, obviously, is, is a difficult one because then you may be looking at the realms of head guards in professional boxing, which I don't ever think will happen again. And to the neck, of course, there's certain areas of the body where you shouldn't be able to punch too. Like rabbit punches is, is the reason why that's illegal is because of the fact that what it can potentially cause. So there is some difficulties around certain things with the sport, but ultimately, as a fan... And knowing the statistics that we know now, I don't feel like they can do too much more than what is already being done. I think the difficulty lies within unsanctioned organisations, the very sort of Eastern European, South American organisations that are really not regulated by anybody. They're the problem in the sport. It's that They're the types of problems that boxing has at the moment, is unregulated and unlicensed. That, for me, is the problem, and that's where we end up seeing the issues I mean, an issue can happen at any one moment in any fight. Of course it can, at the really top level to the really low level. But when you go to this higher level that we cover on a weekly basis, it's very strictly regulated. Whereas you go to an unlicensed show or you go to a a show that's not being licensed by a well-known organisation and you can see the differences in safety measures and things that are there you know the fact that they have first responders there at ringside the fact that there's always an ambulance on site ready to take a boxer to a hospital if needs but you know that sort of stuff that's in the sport now wasn't once there and because of all that now it does make it more regulated it makes more precautionary measures safer for the boxers and you know every time you see a a really 
challenging fight between two guys, automatically the ambulance is, is taking them straight to the hospital. The doctors, ringside doctors, send them straight to the hospital. So for me, boxing is a lot more safer than maybe some of the sports, which if you did a study on some of the sports, you might actually find that there's more evidence that these different sports that are combative are actually more dangerous than boxing or even if they're not combative sports but maybe contact sport you might actually find that there is more different results out of that than what there is of boxing and i'm not saying boxing's perfect because it isn't it has its ups and its downs of course it does but i gen- genuinely feel that at the, the the top level we have as a sport the one of the safest in the world yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think um, look, it's, it has its dangers. You know, guys are stepping into the ring. They understand the consequences of their actions. You know, they, they want to fight. And most of them come from tough backgrounds. And how many times have we read and done stories about fighters where boxing has saved them from from a life of crime, a life of violence? So in actual fact, on that flip side of things, it probably saves more people than it actually destroys lives i mean you talking about the uh lower leagues of of boxing you know the small halls i can't remember if it was the bulgarian uh stanchov or if it was the russian uh Dadishev, but one of those fight fought under i believe his brother's name yep. uh, or his stepbrother's name didn't he so you know the regulations there weren't right you know this guy wasn't a pro um i think i think the the one thing i would say is you know when you get guys like we speak about Egerton, we speak about Chisora, like as in this day and age. I think when they've done their studies, you know, when you look at, when you read, if anyone wants to read the Robert H. Boyle article, it's a really good article. And it goes through, as I say, all the times it, it does studies of fighters um, and the long-term effects with punch drunk, which is obviously a big thing. But the one thing they notice is that the, the guys that are fighting more, obviously, and are in slugfest, like you say, probably on the small circuit at some point, that where their fights weren't even documented, you know, those are the guys who have taken s- sustained punches to the head and no doubt they will have implications with their health going forward in the next few years. It's just inevitable. They've done the scans and it's there. So, I mean, for guys like that, like your Egertons, I think there needs to probably be more CT scans on those guys. That'd be the one thing I would say. Those, those guys that... Uh, they actually get more fans in. You know, we love a slugfest. So when you get these guys that are willing to take a few, like Boom Boom Mancini, like Kim, they bring the audience. So they should be generating more money. So, the, the you know, the networks, the promoters, the managers, they should all be chipping in to making sure that these guys get CT scanned regularly because of they put themselves on the line. But, you know, that's the, we moved away from obviously a story, but it is, you know, it's a, it's a great, it's, it's a, dis- a big discussion. We always have it on our wish list, don't we? How we can make box safe. I mean, the PEDs, you can go right off on the next level and the jumping between weights and trying to force fights because of, even though they're two or three weights too far away from each other and having to make catch weights and stuff, that's not safe either. I think it's the promoters, isn't it, Sean? I think we need a governing body like sort of the one that is a dangerous sport. You know, if you reduce the length of a race, you've got less chance of getting hurt. So they reduce the length of a fight and there's less chance of getting hurt. So I understand it. I think the one thing I will say is from this fight we are talking about, it has made a difference and statistically it's proven that. Now, jumping forward to 1987, and we are going to take an extract from Michael Shapiro's Sports Illustrated article, and it reads, The boy, Chi Wan Kim, sleeps in his mother's arms. He had not been able to sit still all afternoon, and he and his grandfather had shot at each other with plastic guns. The boy, a grandfather, a grandmother, and uncle, and his mother, his father, 
Duk-Koo Kim, a Korean boxer, more famous in death than in life, is dead. He died seven months before the boy was born. Chi-Wan Kim has his father's round face. He often asks, where is my father? And his mother tells him, he got on a plane and went to the States. Now there is truth in the tale. The father did go to America five years ago, and that is where he died. A memorial service was held on the first anniversary of Kim's death, and in time those who cared about him most went on with their lives. The gymnasium where he trained no longer exists. Hyun Chi Kim now prepares his fighters in another gym. The manager has lined his office with pictures of his fighters, and in the corner is the photo of Duke Koo Kim standing in the middle of the ring holding a trophy. On a glass-top coffee table, there are three pictures of Ray Mancini. The people who knew Kim hold no animosity toward Mancini because they say he did not intend to kill anyone. Still, those who knew Kim best have distanced themselves from the sport. Bong Sang Lee, Kim's friend and roommate, gave up fighting and moved to a farming town. Young Mi Lee has decided her son will be an educated man, a politician perhaps, and will not become a professional athlete. Lee has a fiancé's photograph albums, his newspaper clippings and a diary he wrote in pencil. She has no plans to marry. She lives in her new home with her family and sometimes she feels as though Kim were living there with them. Although she did not know him very long, 14 months she knew him, she believes she learnt the sort of man he was. She says he always wanted to be loved more. Now, while the loss of Kim was hard for young me, it was also hard for, for G1, the, the son who had to grow up without a father. And there was also the shame that followed Duku's death, uh, where G1's grandmother committed suicide and a portrayal of the mother accumulating the life insurance money made it worse also. So there was obviously family dispute there. The young me did get with a, a gentleman and G1 did have a stepfather who looked after him and loved him like, like one of his own. And G1 said he, he said he treated me extremely well. When G1 become a teenager, his mother gave him his father's journal to read so he could get more of an understanding of what his dad was like. And he said, I almost thought I'd written it myself. It reflects almost the same thoughts that I had. And it made me believe that if I were in his place fighting that fight, I too would not have stepped back. But his father's warrior spirit came with a consequence. And G1 has felt his loss every day of his life. He says, I wish he did step back. I know how difficult it was for my mother. So he sees two perspectives here, even though he never met his dad. When he was 24, a second year dental student and had already finished with his compulsory military service, G1 was actually given a DVD of his father's fight against Ray Boobo Mancini. He had no intention of watching it whatsoever. He'd seen enough fragments of the fight, though not those final fatal blows, but he has seen bits of it or had seen bits of it on YouTube. Watching his father die wasn't an idea of closure for him, but finally, in July 2010, G1 and his mother consented to be interviewed for Mancini's biography, and it was there that G1 expressed an interest in meeting Ray, and he told Mark Regal, if he still happens to feel guilty about the fight of the past, if it still upsets him and makes him feel insecure, he no longer has to think that way. To his sons and daughter, I would say, I am sorry that you had to suffer. Your father is a good man, 
and you do not need to feel pain because of the hurtful things that people say. 29 years after that fateful night in Caesars, on June 23rd, 2011, Ray sat nervously waiting to meet Kim's son for the first time. The young man emerges from a Cadillac with his mother. Now the ex-fighter and the fighter's son exchange bows and a careful hug and Ray says, I wanted to meet you and I'm very happy that you wanted to meet me. I don't know exactly what to say. Okay, says Jiwan, I introduce my mother. Yes, please, and Ray bows again and says, I hope this does for you what it does for me. I can finally rest easy. Jiwan asks, You're happy? You can be. Ray shows photographs on his mantelpiece of him with his kids, with Ronald Reagan, with Joe DiMaggio, and of course, the picture of his father with his eyes swollen shut, dried blood on his lips after he had defeated Billy Marquette in 1941, and Ray explains, To me, he's beautiful. Jiwan replies and says he looks like you. And Ray makes a little joke and says, After the fight with your father, yes. Young Mi then begins to show her photos of Jiwan at school, in his army uniform with his mum at a picnic, Jiwan as a baby, and then the engagement ceremony that preceded his birth. The beaming groom, as in Kim, his glittering bride, Lee, sit before a great banquet table. Young Mi wears a spray of flowers in her hair and her mother-in-law in a white silk robe is at her side. And Ray says, your father's a good dresser. And G1 asks, how do you feel? Looking at G1 as a snappy dresser, Ray replies, you did well for yourself. The Mancini children then join the dinner. Nina is also considering, this is his daughter, considering a career in restaurant management and the coming school year, will be will see Leonardo, so his son enroll in Santa Barbara Community College and Ray Ray, the third child, and make varsity basketball as a high school sophomore. And they dine Al Fresco, the table set with bottles of Southpaw. And Ray proudly says that's my wine. I love pasta, Jerwin says, having a nice little natter here. And soon Ray raises his glass and he says, I felt guilty about what happened for a long time. I felt guilty because of your mother. I felt guilty that you never met your father. Young me wells up as he's saying this, but the confession continues even after the food arrives. And Ray says, I didn't know they carried him out on a stretcher. It was a great fight. But after that, there was nothing good about it. I had no love for it anymore. I was already looking for a way out. And G1 responds, it was better for your health, obviously, that he left. And G1 then confesses that to finally watching the fight on DVD. And he says, now I can tell you that when I saw the fight for the first time, I felt some hatred to you. But that too has passed. I think it was not your fault. You deserve. Maybe now your family will be more happy. And Ray, obviously, delighted to be with his family and meeting Jerwin and his mother, says thank you and thank you for coming to America. And, you know, I have to say that it's on the documentary, you can watch it. Mark Kriegel, we got this from, the description of how that meeting went, but look, you can watch it on a DVD that's out, The Good Son. You can catch it on YouTube, you can go grab it off of YouTube, pay for it, etc. But it's that, it's quite a new documentary. And um, yeah, it's quite nice to see that all the trouble that Ray Boom Boom Mancini went through and then finally getting the opportunity to to meet Kim's son and his and his wife, I think um, that helped him. And, and you can tell, um, it's, it's quite a nice way to end the story, really. 
Well, we are going to finish off this story with a couple of quotes from Ray himself, starting with how the death of Duck Kim affected him. And he said, the rest of my life, I'm not just Ray Mancini. I'm Ray Mancini, the guy who killed Duck Kim. You never escape that. You wonder what it would have been like for both of us if I had quit or he had quit and this hadn't happened. I've done a lot of praying, a lot of thinking. I'm never really going to know why it happened. No one will. He was a tough kid. Too tough, really. Too tough. Ray lost his affection for the sport of boxing after that night. And he said, to me, there was nothing righteous about it. But it's an honourable sport. There's nothing more pure than having one man facing another man, challenging each other physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, every which way. But that night, it took all the honour. It took all the love. It took everything away from me that night. And that is a good way to end the story of that tragic night, that death in the ring of Duck Koo Kim. And it's been an enjoyable story to retell. And there are some moments in this story, Johnston, that has been really good to go through. And I think what I hope people have taken away from this is more of Duck Koo Kim's side of things. Because Ray, even though was long since retired, what, 30 years now he's been retired? And yet he's still so highly regarded because of what he did in his career. Regardless of that night, people still do look at Ray Mancini as a a bit of a boxing legend and he's still so well regarded. But I think what I take away from this story myself is more the story of, of both men, you know, coming from contrasting lifestyles and the fact that we didn't really know a lot about Duck Koo Kim going into this episode you know, as boxing fans, we knew him as the guy that Ray Mancini killed in the ring. Mm-hmm. Not intentionally, but essentially killed in the ring. And I think that's what a lot of people attach this to. So I hope that what people have perceived from this and been able to interpret from this is actually the story of uh, the man that has been forgotten about, really, in all of this and being labelled as that man that died in the ring that night. He was more than just that. He was obviously a very humble guy who came from a very difficult upbringing and tried to do what Ray Mancini did and tried to push his career to a level that he could only dream of doing. And that night, he gave Ray Mancini the toughest fight of his life because it wasn't only the toughest fight of his boxing career, but it turned out to be the toughest fight of his life because of everything that came after it. And what was so heartwarming was knowing that he was able to essentially make peace in some way with, obviously, G1 and young me. You know, all them years later, they were able to meet and they were able to talk. And, you know, he probably needed that so badly, Ray Mancini. He needed that essential forgiveness from the family you know that he knows what he does and he lives with that and he lives with that today and he'll live with that till the day he dies but to get some sort of peace from it must have been a a very emotional moment for him and, and his family as well of course because you know I can imagine as we told the story about his daughter Nina you know people must have been saying stuff to the kids growing up about what happened you know your dad's the dad that killed that guy in the ring you can imagine the sort of stuff that kids would have said to them growing up so it certainly would have had a knock-on effect that night in the ring on his whole family and you know even still like when time passes by and the kids have kids and their kids have more kids and you know the the Mancini legacy will always be not tarnished but it'll always be 
intertwined with this moment and it will be synonymous with this moment. And I think maybe some people do forget about how great of a fighter Ray Mancini really was because of how long ago it was he was at his peak of his powers. And I think when you tell stories like this about the careers of fighters like these, you get to really understand how truly great and and how true difficult moments were during those times so for me personally I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this episode of the darker side of boxing telling a completely different story and you know I hope that everybody has enjoyed it as well yeah, I, I, we've thoroughly enjoyed the story. I mean, we we always knew it was something we was going to do for Dark Side of Boxing because obviously it's a death in the ring and it could literally change boxing for the better in terms of uh, minimising the, the life expectancy of fighters, basically. I mean, that, that's quite clear of the data that we was able to present you. But, I mean, the fact that Duck Koo Kim's mum committed suicide because she couldn't handle it anymore after... A, after her son died. I mean, it's it's incredible story. And then the referee, uh, Richard Green, goes and shoots himself. We don't know if it's associated with the fight. There's very limited information. I mean, if there's any, anyone has information, again, if you'd be great if you could share that with us. But the chain of events that followed from this fight is, is quite remarkable. Um, and as you say, just two completely different upbringings, two completely different people, but yet similar in ways, uh, you know, and... Um, Dukku Kim would have been a good family man. I, I get that impression, like Ray Mancini was. I know he had other wives, etc. But you know, he 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 really struggled, and his family obviously dealt with it. The impact that it had on his family was quite evident. And I mean, he was twenty when he fought Aguero. Twenty-one when he fought Dukku Kim. He goes on to beat uh, Bobby Chacon, you know, depleted Bobby Chacon, and then obviously loses to Greg Hagen. But you know, he was only a young boy, Sean. He had everything didn't he I mean he had all the endorsements and every, everything was going for the kid he would have gone on and he even said himself you know because of the way he fought because he was a slugger he would take a three or four to take to go and hit him back with three or four he was very entertaining to watch in that respect that that's what put him off when he when when Kim died because he was like shit that could have been me and his dad said that you know that could have been you so thankful you're here be thankful for that and that put him off I mean Bob Arum even said it and to be good but one thing I will say is Bob Arum was actually shining quite a nice light in this episode for once normally with these dark side of boxes he's a scumbag isn't he so it was quite nice just for him to come out uh, smelling the roses for once but Rayman Cena I mean look as you say great fight tremendous fighter great to watch how far could he have gone on? He could have gone on to probably win numerous world titles, potentially. But obviously the demons of that fight cast a huge shadow over him and his career obviously just ended really, didn't it, after that? But look, it's a great story. I enjoyed it. I love to talk about all the safety elements of it and just how it all sort of evolved, really. But I say a great story, but it had a tragic, it was tragic that a guy had to die in the ring for the safety of the sport. I hope that doesn't happen again. Absolutely not. And, you know, there's so much more regulations in the sport, as we were talking about a little bit earlier on, that things, you know, have, have, have happened as a result of, of the death of Duke Koo Kim in 1982 that have changed the sport for the better. And, and it's good. And obviously there are still things that will always need to be changed with a combative sport. It's, it's you know, it's inevitable that these things, you know, will will need to be changed at some point down the line. You know, there'll be more safety measures, there'll be things that could change in the future that will enhance the sport and the safety of it. But it was this moment, this particular night, this death in the ring that 
change the landscape of, of boxing, really, because of, of the round yeah. change and the standing eight count in particular. Mm-hmm. It did. It changed it a lot. It changed boxing a lot. It was this moment that changed it, and which is, you know, this is why we wanted to tell the story of, of this incident occurring and these two fighters and how it obviously affected not just them, their families, the people around them, and how it lingered on in Ray Mancini's mind for such a long, long time, understandably so. So it's been great to talk about the after effects of of what happened in 1982. And I hope that everybody has enjoyed the episode in terms of the storytelling aspects of it. I hope you've enjoyed hearing the stories from Dukku Kim's side and obviously some of the inside information on Ray Mancini at the time. We thoroughly enjoyed it. And if you have enjoyed it, do let us know on social media. Tweet us at darker underscore side underscore pod. Or when you see the post go out on the BTR Boxing Podcast Network pages, which are on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube and TikTok, please make sure, if you get a minute, just drop a comment there, just let us know what you think about it, any thoughts, feelings and opinions are always very much appreciated, and a like, a share, a retweet, uh, an Instagram post, whatever you want to do to support us in that regard, please do it, it's genuinely appreciated. A big final shout out to the patrons of this particular podcast, thank you for being a patron, thank you for supporting us, and thank you for being there to help us get brilliant episodes like this put together with all the hours of research that go into it without you guys we wouldn't be able to produce the high quality episodes that you hear on each series so with that in mind johnston it signals an end to episode number three of the darker side of boxing you've been listening to the tale of ray mancini and duke kim a death in the ring Podcast Network.